you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Devotion. Great love, care, and support for someone or something. The action of spending a lot of time or energy on something. An act of prayer or private worship. What comes to mind when you think of the word devotion? You see, if you were to ask that question, many of us would have a different thing that comes to mind. Well, today we're going to be looking at what it means to have a devoted life, where it all needs to start and where it all ends, which is in eternity. We're going to be looking at three things in this, passage, in this text here, in the gracious mercy, verses 4 through 6, number 2, the eternal inheritance in verse 7, and number 3, the stern encouragement, verse 8. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8 this morning. The gracious mercy the eternal inheritance, and the stern encouragement. Number one, the gracious mercy, verses four through six. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, Paul once again goes back to where it all begins and their calling from God. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. This is in reference to the incarnation of the Son who took on human flesh. The Son came to be the Savior of man and was God with us, Emmanuel, standing as a representative of mankind and offering the perfect sacrifice which was the only sacrifice acceptable to the Father on behalf of man. Sinful man before a holy, just God could not offer this sacrifice. In fact, all of mankind fell in Adam. And since he fell, we all fell with him and are born in sin. In fact, Romans 3 tells us that since the witness of the Old Testament writings, it's clear that Jesus would one day come to take care of our sin. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, those that were in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, they looked ahead to the coming Messiah. We look back because historically we know that Jesus walked this earth, lived a perfect life, died, was buried, and rose again. And we have historical accounts of that. We both, though, had to come by faith before God. We look back, they looked forward. 
When the kindness here in this text, it says the kindness. Another word for that would be excellence, goodness, uprightness, and love. What's amazing is that the translators use the word love here when the idea really is a love toward man. We get the word philanthropy from this. Seeking the generous well-being of someone else. The Father cared so much that He gave for our well-being by giving of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if someone offered you the very thing needed to spare your life from being lost. But in this case, you're guilty eternally. So someone had to step in who was eternal and take your place. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. This is actually an incredible statement that really had me stop for a bit and consider what the rest of the text is saying. In fact, I I looked at this and, and compared it to the good works that Paul then encourages the believers to perform. And there's works of righteousness and good works. And they're not used the same way. Phrases should make us pause and think, ponder. Why is it that he uses this over here and this phrase over here? Well, the reality is if you actually do a cross-reference, what you'll find at times is that works of righteousness are something coming from a counterfeit or a standard that does not belong to God. In fact, Satan and our own self-deception are many times what is in reference. The currency here isn't true righteousness which comes from God himself. In fact, if you were to look in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, look at how Paul describes false teachers in the church and false apostles. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if he ministers His ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. So when you have a person that wants to demonstrate God's righteousness and it comes from within, it is essentially demonic. It is essentially of Satan. It is not a righteousness of God. And apart from Christ, you and I cannot demonstrate that righteousness. Jesus himself actually makes an incredible statement in speaking on the kingdom of heaven that the standard is not even met by the greatest rule keepers that you and I know. In Matthew 5, verse 20, he makes a statement. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have a group of religious people that really follow Rules that you and I would find absolutely atrocious. In fact, they added to those things. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, what he's really saying there is, unless your righteousness is very different than what they have been offering, you won't enter. Because the currency is not the same. It's not the same currency. Our currency is not able to be accepted simply because we've done something. It needs to be someone else paying on our behalf. 
We can't just simply convert a few good deeds and gain righteousness. That's not how it works. We can't be made right before God because we've done a kind deed for the day. The standard is much too high for that. A.W. Pink says this, Growth in grace is growth downward. It is the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves. It is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. The longer you're a saint, the more humble you and I ought to be. The longer we've been walking with God, the more we realize our righteousness doesn't matter, doesn't add up. According to his mercy, he saved us. It is God that showed us mercy. It is God that worked in our hearts. It is all him, and the way that he did it is clearly stated in the last part of verse 5 into verse 6. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, church, there's an inner cleansing which brings about a new birth where we get the idea of born again. The new birth is wholly done by God and not by us, which is one of the great debates many still like to have today. Does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration precede faith? According to this text in John chapter 3, the Spirit is the one that gives us the new birth. It is not something that we do. We are physically alive but spiritually dead and need to be reborn spiritually in order to spiritually live. This all happens when the Holy Spirit gives us new life. We baptize new converts who have trusted Christ to symbolize what has taken place on the inside, which is an identification with Christ. Baptism should always come after a person has clearly identified with Christ, not before. Let's look at a few texts. In Acts, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, we read the following. Acts 2, 40 through 42. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. This also happened when Philip preached later on in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Paul himself, when he preaches to the Gentiles, has this occur. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia... Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his, heart, his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. 
You see, the picture of baptism as practiced by the church today is a picture of the inner rebirth and identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus gave up his own life so that we ourselves could have eternal life, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, we as disciples have something greater than just his physical presence. You see, most of us would say, if Jesus was just here, present with us physically, we'd be better off. Jesus himself tells us that it's better for us that we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He tells his own disciples that. And you see a boldness in those disciples that they never had when Jesus was physically present with them. We have the Holy Spirit overflowing. Jesus was so generous that he gave us the Holy Spirit. He left him for us. The Holy Spirit's to be valued just as the Son because he gives that life to see Jesus for who he is. All members of the Trinity play a role in our salvation. Unfortunately, what happens in many Baptist churches is we ignore the ministry of the Holy Spirit to our detriment. He's to be valued. He's given us new life, new eyes to see. But this doesn't stop here. Number two, the eternal inheritance. Verse 7, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Your righteousness doesn't count, believer. You need to set it aside. His is placed on your behalf. And you're declared righteous. You're declared holy as if you and I never sinned because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. What a striking statement. To think that you and I, sinful people, stand holy and righteous because of what Jesus has done. Positionally, you are as if you've never sinned. You believe that? Take a moment and really think through that. Stop and think, you, with all the filth that you and I are before God, are declared righteous, declared holy. For what? For what Jesus has done. Not because of something we've done. Grace justified you and me. We didn't play any part in any of that. I love what Spurgeon says. We believe that the work of regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and faith is not an act of man's free will and power, but of the mighty, efficacious, and irresistible grace of God. All of grace for all of life, church. You inherit first and most important of all, believer, Jesus Christ himself. And everything that comes with that. You have Him. You have everything that you need. Believer, you and I don't need to look to the next president to have what we need. We don't need to look to the government for what we need. We have all that we need. 
and it's found in the face of Christ. If you want everything else but Him, then heaven's not really what you're wanting. So many people are conned into thinking heaven is everything but Jesus. That's what makes heaven what it is. The glory of the Son. So many are moved by the stuff waiting, the people waiting, the pain gone, but to see Jesus, it's all but forgotten. When you think of glory, what comes first in your mind, to be honest? Is it the loved ones you miss? Is it the, I don't want more pain anymore? I'm really sick and tired of doing this. Or is it Jesus? That's what you can't wait for. What is incredible, though, is that God gives us even more than just eternal life. He gives us an inheritance because we've been adopted into the family of God. You have something else waiting for you on the other side due to what Jesus has already done on your behalf. Our body's breaking down. It's getting very frustrating. We get down at times. But we need to be reminded to see beyond this life, church. Just as Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, about eternal things. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Is that our perspective? Are we so consumed by what the media is telling us to be consumed with, what Facebook algorithms are telling us to be consumed with? Church, we need more conversations about what's awaiting us in the future than what is going on in the present. When you're stuck in a really horrible day, remember the future. Stop getting caught up in the moment every time. And I know some people are like, oh, we need to stop and, you know, stay in the moment. Yes, I'm not talking about those moments where you need to spend precious time with your family and kids. I'm talking about the moments where it's all falling apart and you don't know what to do. Think of eternity. An exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why are we so bothered by the temporary stuff? We keep forgetting about the eternal things that matter way more. Maybe we've been focused too much on the things that are seen that we keep forgetting that there are things that we haven't seen yet that are much greater and awaiting us. There are things that are yet to be revealed, and you just haven't seen them yet. Think of the most amazing thing that you've anticipated in your life, whether it was when you were growing up and you couldn't wait for that amazing toy, or when you became an adult, you couldn't wait to get married, or when you finally got your first house. All these amazing things that we all looked forward to. The things in eternity far exceed all of those things. 
Because the truth is, toys break down, relationships are fractured many times, and houses are temporary. They don't outlast eternal. A.W. Tozier made a statement that's actually quite convicting. I had to stop on this one for a while, especially for those in ministry. He hits it spot on on this one. Listen to what he says. We're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. God never meant it to be so. God meant that a convert should learn to be a worshiper, and after that he can learn to be a worker. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. What a statement. You've got to do more. You've got to worship more. Bow at the feet of Jesus first. And then get up and serve. You ever get so busy about the things of God that you forget Him? Like, wait a second, who am I doing this for? Have I worshipped? Maybe so many of us are simply workers. We've never learned to worship first. What's the reason we do what we do, church? What's the reason? If it's just about keeping busy and doing the work, maybe we need to pause and simply worship first. It's not like God didn't call Moses to actually lead the people out. But I still think the statement is fascinating when he says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. comes a time to just step back and let God be something you're in awe with. His glory. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be about the work of the kingdom, church, but it means we lack the proper motivation many times. If the motivations are paycheck, it's a bad motivation. If the motivation's numbers, it's a bad motivation. The motivation is making sure we hit budget. It's a bad motivation. The motivation should be worship. Which is why, once again, Paul brings up the strong urgency to keep going. Number three, the stern encouragement, verse eight. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. This is something that Paul tells Titus he needs to emphasize. This is to be repeated. If you and I have trusted Christ, we need to make it a point to be devoted or engaged in good works that God has called each of us to individually. This brings a benefit to those around us. This is what the text is saying. This brings a benefit to people around you. You're not just doing it for no one. 
You're doing it before God to bring a benefit to people around you. Many of the things that we do in service to God will bring a benefit to people around us. Stop disconnecting the two. Let's put this into a practical manner to reemphasize what it might look like in the life of a believer. Essentially, what Paul is getting at here is live out one of the greatest commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. With every fiber of your being, loving your neighbor as you would yourself. Whatever it is that God's called you to do, do it by being a blessing to those around you. Especially when it says that clearly in the text, these things are good and profitable to men. Notice that it says good and profitable to men, not to God. God is good. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Good works are to be done for His glory to those around us. And you know what's amazing is we have it backwards. We do good works so we please God somehow and forget everybody else. Oh, it's enough. God knows my heart. Did you bring a benefit to those around you? Because that's essentially what good works should have. Maybe God's impressed it in your heart to take care of a need that someone else has that's financial. And it comes about while you're praying for that individual, reading a passage of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. You're reading through a certain text. You've been talking to somebody, and God's just really impressed it on your heart. You know what? Help that person out. Write a check. Give them some money. Help them out financially. That's a good work for the benefit of others. Maybe if you've noticed someone hurting emotionally or spiritually and you come alongside them and encourage them. You yourself, by the way, will also be encouraged. Because that's how God works. You see, so many people that give of themselves for others and complain about what others usually do it with the wrong heart. If you're like, I give of myself and nobody loves me, nobody cares about me, maybe you need to look at your heart brother and sister. Maybe you need to pause and think of what is it that I'm doing this for? Maybe I've got ulterior motives that I'm not honest about. Maybe it's what I can get out of it instead of how I can serve God. Maybe it's finding something that needs to be fixed or repaired and it would be a tremendous blessing for the church or that brother or sister And you take it on yourself to do the work without anybody asking you. There are so many things that you really don't need to ask other people to do. God pretty much clearly revealed, you're gifted for this, do something about it. And you and I have a bunch of excuses just like Moses did. Of why we're not qualified and we can't do it. And even when God sends help, we still don't want it. Here's what's fascinating, I think, about the way we do these things in our Christian life. And I don't know if you're, you've ever done this. I know I have. God's impressed in my heart something to do. I need, to, I need to help in a certain area. 
And what I tend to do is, well, you know what? I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Like, it's not pressing right now. I'll do it later. And then the later comes along, and I still forgot what it is that I was supposed to do, what it is that God impressed on my heart. And what's really heartbreaking is sometimes you miss great opportunities in your life because you decided to push that aside and say, well, that's not, that's not my priority now. And God's clearly made an impression on your heart that you, he wants you to do it. It's so important to constantly be reminded of what Christ has done on our behalf. Else you won't maintain good works. Here's, here's what's really fascinating is we try to do good works. We try to do these things to help others while forgetting what the gospel really said. You and I will serve totally differently if we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf undeserved. Then if we kind of come at it with, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of God. Got a lot of privileges. I'm good. Heaven is my home. Entitled. A lot of Christians that are entitled. It's not just people in society. A lot of Christians are entitled. Well, you know, the Lord owes me. I paid for the coffee for the guy behind me. You don't even understand grace at that moment. What did Jesus do for you that you really deserved? Hmm. You didn't do anything to deserve grace from Christ. See, the reason you need to be reminded of the gospel is because when you do good works, you'll be a selfish, snobbish person. Always self-centered. Always thinking about yourself when you even do something for someone else. Well, I did this for them. The least they could do is invite me. Oh. We have the wrong view entirely. You'll be a selfish, self-centered Christian who only cares for themselves. You won't care for the body of Christ. Those are the folks that complain about everybody else not caring about them, and they don't care about anybody else. People need to love me. People need to care about me. People need to invite me. When did you do any of those? When is grace going to affect us enough, church, that we, out of an outflow of understanding what Jesus has done on our behalf, are going to go, I'm going to live for everybody else too. I'm not going to live just for what I would want. I'm going to live for his glory, to make him known, to love people around me that maybe are hard to love. We all get frustrated. We've had people frustrated with us, have we not? I can promise you one thing. You and I have disappointed God quite a few times. You want to be more like Jesus? Everybody says, I want to be like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus did. Then continually remember what he's done for you. Then you could be like that. The moment you and I forget what he's done for us, we're going to start living in our version of what we think he is. Not what he truly is and what he's revealed in his word. You want to be less like him? Just focus on yourself and your needs. 
See if you'll ever become the giver that God wants you to be. The leader you should be. The faithful follower you tell others that you are. You see, church, here's the danger in all of this. Here's the big danger in all this. If we're not careful, we'll look at others that are doing good works for the kingdom and look down on them for it. Because they're shining a little brighter than we are at that moment. Good works are not there to impress others about us. Good works are there to impress others about God. Why do you do what you do? Why do we serve the way we serve? Why do we care for people the way we ought to? So here's the thing, church, in conclusion. Are you devoted to good works? Are you devoted to good works? Whether you are a child of God or not, it all starts with what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you don't know Christ, you need to start by repenting, turning to Him first. Confessing that you're a sinner that can't save themselves, only Jesus can save. And once you've done that, God is automatically going to give you all the tools necessary to live for Him. Because He's given you of His Spirit. He's given you New life. If you have accepted Christ, it is not simply enough to just say, Jesus paid it all, I don't need to do anything now. That's a misunderstanding of that phrase. You and I ought to want to do good works for God and for the benefit of others. It should come pouring out of our hearts that we want to serve and live for Him. God has called you to be devoted to Him. And in devotion to Him, you are to be devoted and careful to maintain good works. Because the truth is, why is this such a reminder that Paul is emphasizing? Because we tend to stop doing it. Some of us serve a lot better in the past than we do in the present. Some of us were more giving years ago than we are now. Some of us cared for others back then a lot more than we do today. Some of us made things more about God in the past than we do now. I don't know if you've ever fallen into this trap, and I will be the first to admit I have. When I was at my lowest points in my life, financially broke, financially stressed, Didn't know what I was going to do. Man, I turned to God like you wouldn't believe. I'd pray, I'd weep, I'd beg God to help me out of this mess. And God delivered. He gave me opportunities to work more. Cleared a lot of that debt. And then for some reason, as time goes on, the reliance on Him kind of wanes. I got it now. I'm good. I needed you back then, Lord. 
but I figured it out, right? I've applied some of your verses in the Bible a little better now, so I believe that I've got it figured out. I know you said the borrower is slave to the lender. I figured that one out. I'm good. That's what we do. That's what we do. The reliance on grace we had in the past is that in the present. That giving heart we once had is that in the present. That love for others that we once had is it still present. The most tragic thing for many believers is that they don't finish well, they stumble and become embittered towards the end of their journey. Instead of finishing like Paul, fighting the good fight of faith, they stumbled on the way to the end. We need to be careful to maintain good works, devoted to those things. How are you doing in this area? Were you more willing to do what God wanted you to do in times past, but you've just gotten a little more stingy, ungrateful, selfish lately? Maybe you tell others you're grateful for what Jesus has done, but your life is kind of it's kind of hard to tell sometimes that you're really so grateful for what Jesus has done on your behalf. You see, some of us think of good works and it sounds more like a chore to us than a joy. <sighs> Gotta do these things. There's no joy. It's a chore to many of us. Maybe if we went back and thought through that text that Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, we would understand that that's the heart of God. You know what God did for us? He did everything and demanded from us nothing. The only thing he took from us was sin. What an exchange. You, sinner, are now holy. You offered me nothing in the currency that I would demand. But here, I've sent you my son, and he's going to pay that for you. And he's also going to give you his righteousness. He's also going to declare you a child of mine. All I ask from you is that you maintain a life of good works now in light of that. Not to gain favor with me. You have that already in Jesus. But to live it out to your brothers and sisters and people all around you and maintain those good works to bring glory to myself. Maybe the gospel has just been a passing thought to you and me. We've heard it so many times. We've gotten so used to it. It means very little to us today. Maybe it's a passing thought rather than the passion of your heart. You and I would serve very differently if the gospel was something we were passionate about internally. When we sing songs like, 
All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. They'd mean something more to us. Maybe if you once remembered how much Jesus loved you again, you'd take more seriously when He said to let your light shine before men. And you need to remember that that statement there, He's saying that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your good works are to their benefit to also see the Lord. We don't do good works for salvation. We do it rather out of salvation that's already been given. Good works are necessary, believer. They're not optional. They are the very means that God uses to reach others for his glory. They don't save others, but they reflect him and bring attention to him. Let's finish with this closing thought from Oswald Chambers. Have you ever realized that you can give things to God that are of value to Him? Or are you just sitting around daydreaming about the greatness of His redemption while neglecting all the things you could be doing for Him? I'm not referring to works which could be regarded as divine and miraculous, but ordinary, simple things. Things which would be evidence to God that you are totally surrendered to Him.